Hey folks, this is Michael, and welcome to Tatter. Before we get started, I just want to say two things. First, unless anyone on Tatter says that they are speaking on behalf of any particular organization or group, you should assume that each person speaks for themselves and themselves alone. I always want to point that out to avoid misunderstanding. The second thing that I want to say is thank you. Thanks to each of you who offers financial support for Tatter through Patreon, but more generally, whether you do that or not, thanks for listening to this podcast. It means a lot to me. With all that said, let's get started. Here's Tatter. Soldiering and policing, they ain't the same thing. And before we went and took the wrong turn and, and start up with these war games, the cop walked a beat, and he learned that post. Today I'm going to take the unusual step of opening by reading verbatim from Wikipedia. And here I quote. Shortly after midnight on March 13, 2020, Louisville police entered the apartment of Breonna Taylor and Kenneth Walker using a battering ram to force open the door. The police were investigating two men they believed were selling drugs, allegedly unaware the men were already in custody. The Taylor-Walker home was included in a signed no-knock search warrant, because police said one of the men used it to receive packages. The suspected drug dealer had allegedly been seen walking into Taylor's apartment one January afternoon with the United States Postal Service package before leaving and driving to a known drug house, and the warrant said a U.S. postal inspector confirmed that the man had been receiving packages at the apartment. Postal inspector Tony Gooden has said that his office had told police there were no packages of interest being received there. Louisville police allegedly announced themselves while entering the home after knocking several times and saying there were Louisville police officers with a search warrant. Neighbors and Taylor's family dispute this, saying there was no announcement and that Walker and Taylor believed someone was breaking in, causing Walker to act in self-defense. Walker said in his police interrogation that Taylor yelled multiple times, Who is it? after hearing a loud bang at the door, but received no answer, and that he then armed himself. Walker, a licensed firearm carrier, shot first, striking a police officer in the leg. In response, the officers opened fire with more than 20 rounds, hitting objects in the living room, dining room, kitchen, hallway, bathroom, and both bedrooms. Taylor was shot at least eight times and pronounced dead at the scene. No drugs were found in the apartment. End quote. The death of Brianna Taylor has sparked outrage as have previous cases of black Americans dying at the hands of police under dubious circumstances, from Amadou Diallo to Tamir Rice to Eric Garner. But for all the outrage these cases have sparked, the recent death of George Floyd has sparked even more. For 8 minutes and 46 seconds, Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin pressed his knee on the neck of Floyd, despite the fact that Floyd was handcuffed, despite the fact that it was clear the conduct was being videotaped, despite the complaints of bystanders. 
Additionally, according to at least one criminal complaint, Chauvin's knee stayed in place despite Floyd becoming unresponsive and despite another officer not finding a pulse. Floyd was later declared dead. In the wake of Floyd's death and the subsequent protests around the world, I spoke to my friend Lamar Stewart. When Stewart first appeared on this podcast, he was an officer with the Philadelphia Police Department. He's now working in the office of Philadelphia District Attorney Larry Krasner, by reputation one of our country's more progressive prosecutors. Stewart took care not to speak on behalf of the PPD or on behalf of D.A. Krasner's office, but his own thoughts made for a rich conversation about policing, including its connections to race. I now share our conversation in this episode, which is titled, There's Got to Be a Better Way. So I was uh, working for the Philadelphia Police Department for four years uh, okay. prior to uh, being hired in my current capacity. Okay. And while you were on the Philadelphia Police Department, you were, uh, for at least part of that time, vice president of the Greater Philadelphia Chapter of the National Black Police Association? That's correct. Okay. And you are also uh, an Army veteran? That's correct. You did you work in real estate or elsewhere in business at some point? Yeah, yes, I was a, a, a regional um, vice president for a real estate firm here in Philadelphia. Okay, um, you are now a detective uh, in the uh, district attorney's office. Yes, um, and you are also senior pastor of Taylor M- Memorial Baptist Church. That's correct. That's correct. I also, so my, my official role at, at the DA's office is uh, chief of community engagement. Uh, I am a detective there, uh, but I, I give leadership to the community engagement unit. Okay. Um, and your father? Father three. How old are you? <laughs> uh, 35. <laughs> you, you're, you're packing a lot into your life. Uh, you're, you've been a pretty busy guy. Certainly. Certainly. Yeah, I was just thinking about all that you've done. And uh, at 49, I feel like I've got some catching up to do. But, uh, um, so tell me more about, and again, I know that you are not speaking on behalf of the uh, the DA's office, but tell me about uh, those two roles, uh, both community engagement. And I didn't even know that DA's had detectives. I assume the detectives were exclusively in the police department. So tell me about those two roles you play. Yeah, so... Um I transitioned from the police department over to the DA's office last April. Uh, DA Krasner offered me the opportunity to uh, give leadership to his uh, community engagement uh, unit. Uh, Because of my law enforcement credentials, um, PPD, uh, it made sense for me to come over, not just to lead the community engagement unit, but also to maintain those uh, law enforcement credentials for uh, a myriad of reasons. One, uh, in the future, you know, I have, uh, desires to um, further my career in law enforcement uh, and in public safety, but also uh, that designation as a Philadelphia County Detective uh, allows me to uh, conduct investigations uh, on behalf of the DA uh, or to support investigations uh, that the office is uh, is uh, is carrying out, um, but also to build relationships. Um, and improve the communication between uh, the DA's office uh, and uh, the uh, 
uh, Philadelphia Police Department. Um, so just that designation in itself uh, allows for me to get into some rooms that perhaps I would not be able to get get into it, uh, you know, without that without that designation. So as you know, the uh, event that motivated me to reach out to you for this interview was the death of George Floyd, and I, I'm not going to ask you to. Uh, evaluate the officer's uh, conduct in that case, because I know you're not a fact finder for that case. You're not judge or jury for that case. Uh, I mean, feel free if you want to volunteer, but I'm not going to put you in that position. I'm more curious about your personal experience uh, in the wake of that. And first of all, I'm, I'm curious, um, have you watched uh, the entire video of that incident? I have. I have, certainly. So I was thinking this morning that uh, I'm curious if you remember where you were when you first learned about that, uh, that, that incident. Uh, I, I, I can't tell you I remember where, where, I, where I was when I learned about it, but I know uh, that when I first uh, looked at the video, I was home. Yeah, I, I learned about the incident prior to looking at the video, of course, um, but I, I was home uh, when I. Uh, actually open up the video and and watch. Do you recall how it personally affected you to watch the video? Certainly. Um, You know, uh, I I was certainly uh, anger, frustrated, uh, or angry and frustration uh, certainly uh, uh, took over. Um, And then that that one experience just began to trigger so many emotions and thoughts. Uh, I started to think about other instances uh, where uh, an unarmed African-American person uh, uh, had been killed and assassinated by the police. Um, mm-hmm. I remember in that moment thinking, um, why? Like, what, what, what's going through this officer's head at this moment? Uh, there is no circumstance that I can think of that would create um, that response for any officer who has uh, a heart for people, who has a, um, who who operates with a level of integrity. Uh, Listen, law enforcement can be a very difficult job at times. but but that was not uh, the best of what um, what what a someone who truly um, has a heart for service would do. Um, so I, I remember just being frustrated. I, I didn't even process it initially as someone who is a member of the law enforcement community and as a person who is a, a part of the justice system. I, I, I processed that first just as an African American man, and I was just I was frustrated. I was I was upset. Um, um, there was a moment where I just, I felt, um, uh, and, and I go in and out of these moments at times when these situations come, come up where, it, where you don't even, you know, want to be connected to that type of behavior or that system. Yeah. Um, I, I felt that for a minute. Yeah. Um, I, I thought about my 17 year old son. Uh, yeah. I thought yeah. about the fact that I'm raising, uh, Afri- you know, African American young men uh, and uh, and a daughter. Uh, so, so I, I I felt it. I felt it as a man. I felt it as a black man. 
uh, and that that anger was real. Have you been in communication since uh, the George Floyd death uh, with other current or former uh, officers of color? And if so, have you talked about that incident with them? Certainly, certainly. Uh, and many of them share. Uh, in fact, I have not come across one, I should say. So all who I've talked to uh, share the same sentiments uh, that that I feel, those who I've, that I've spoken to. Um, what was very interesting um, beyond my conversations with other African-American officers uh, and officers of color, this was the first time, and Mike, you've been on my social media pages, you've seen me go back and forth with individuals who are in law enforcement community on, on other other incidents, other uh, killings of, uh, of unarmed Black people. Yeah. Um, this was the first time that I actually uh, saw and witnessed um, a large amount of non-African American, particularly white officers, yeah. showing uh, outrage and public outrage. I, I never saw so many officers, to include white officers, um, on social media with hashtags saying justice uh, for for George Floyd. That this was. I was I was shocked, but it said a lot about uh, this this moment as well. So so so, what's your? Do you have any sense as to what it is about this particular case that distinguishes it from others in ways that would motivate those officers who are not African American, including white officers, to be so outraged? You know, um, I, I think that we have seen other uh, instances where those of us who are people of ebony hue, we see it and we are immediately triggered because we're clear on the history yeah. uh, and some of the challenges that have always existed between the law enforcement community and, and the African-American community. Yeah. But I think it was something about seeing the, that officer's need Mm -hmm. on the neck of Mr. Floyd for almost nine minutes. Yeah. Uh, th there was something that shocked the conscience of, of, of America uh, and of those who may in their heart have wanted to say something in the past, but for whatever reasons did not. And even for those who maybe didn't see it uh, as unjustified in other situations. Um, I also think that when you have police officials at senior level positions making statements and speaking out against it, it creates a space where other officers within that rank structure uh, who may not be uh, in senior management or middle management, but may just be in patrol, when they see their chief and others making public state statements, it creates a space now where where they feel comfortable with sharing. Um, you know, the, the culture within the, the law enforcement community uh, at times can um, ostracize people who are outspoken on issues of race and, and bigotry uh, and, and, uh, and, 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 and bias. Uh, are, you, are, are you speaking from personal experience there? 
I'm speaking from personal experience. This is our- <laughs> uh, do you want to say more about that? Yeah, you know, I, I know, I know, uh, I know what it, I know what it feels like uh, to. I, I've been very outspoken since. You know, my, my I didn't grow up wanting to be a cop. Yeah, we've had this conversation before, where um, yeah, I grew up in Germantown, here in Philadelphia. My father's family is in in North Philly. Um, yeah. I grew up as a you know as a as a black kid in Philly um, who had perceptions of law enforcement based upon personal experience, also based upon um, observation. Um, and so I didn't I didn't want to I didn't grow up wanting to do this. I joined and, and was and applied for the police department, um, leaving a very secure and good position in real estate um, because I felt called um, to to a level of, of activism and advocacy um, and service. Um, while many of my friends and comrades, and I'll use that language, uh, took the front lines to protest. Yeah. I decided to go within the, the system uh, to both challenge and help to transform the system from within. Uh, but when people realize that you're not cut from that, the same cloth, uh, when, when, uh, when uh, you challenge the system and, and challenge the, the culture, uh, that there are people, there are, there are individuals, um, and sometimes greater number who will uh, directly or indirectly uh, try to create barriers uh, and um, uh, will resist that that change. Um, and so I, I experienced that. I know others who have as well. Um, you know, I, it's 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 challenging when you are an independent thinker who has a heart to serve and who has a occupational history of, of wearing uniform and serving. And, and, and that's genuinely, genuinely who you are as an individual, but yet your values are, are, are in, are, uh, may not be in line with some of what you see within the system you work in. Um, and when you're trying to push that system in the right direction or encourage that system or sometimes challenge that system uh, to move in the right direction, uh, you will come against resistance. And so you got to be sure of, of your purpose and sure of your, your calling. And, and you have to kind of draw some strength from, from some other places. Yeah. Uh, I won't go, go into preaching mode too much. <laughs> draw your strength well, from other places to be able to navigate that terrain. Well, we are, we are, uh, you and I are talking on a Saturday, so I'm sure you're starting to gear up, uh, for, uh, for preaching tomorrow. Uh, but I, I want to talk about, uh, the culture of police. If, if you would agree that there is a culture of police, uh, in other terms, a blue culture. And so I, I, I suppose I have a two part question. Uh, I mean, you made reference to a culture before, but I want to make sure that, um, that I'm clear here. First, do you think that it, based on your experience, uh, that it is correct to uh, claim that there is, in fact, a blue culture, a culture among police? And if so, how would you describe that culture? So uh, certainly there is a, a culture. Um, 
and there there is a blue culture there's a blue family uh there is this dynamic that once you graduate the academy you are now in the blue family yep unless you choose to operate from a an a neutral place or if you choose to operate from a um a uh, a more distant place yeah uh, uh you then by default are are in that blue family you you may choose to be, not be or you may actually be ostracized because they figure out who you are yeah uh, but you are part of that blue family and no matter whether you are white latino uh whether you are uh, are, are black uh whether you are asian no matter what your uh, your 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 race or, race or your ethnicity may be you you are part of that that family, um, and uh, blue protects blue. Uh, that's a part of the, that culture backing the blue, uh, and and sometimes that that backing the blue um, is uh, is for the good, um, and 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 in many instances that that backing the blue um, is. It is not necessarily for the best, um, but 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 the culture exists. Um, What's an example of how that's how blue protecting blue is is a good thing? You know, so um, in patrol, for example, you know you you're responding to different jobs. You're yeah. you're you can you know particularly in a larger municipality like Philadelphia, like uh, D.C., like Baltimore, like Chicago. Um, um, uh, I would presume, like you know, some, even some areas of Portland, perhaps. You know, mm-hmm. you're 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 responding to uh, call after call after call. You know, um, I remember being in patrol, and sometimes at the end of your shift on your log, if you log each each assignment, you might have some twenty or so entries in an eight-hour tour that could go from a missing person report to a domestic incident, to a car accident, to a stabbing, to mul- multiple shootings. Yeah. A part of that blue culture where it is good is there is an expectation that when your brother or sister is responding to a, a, an emergency, they're responding to a job, no matter what that job is, that if you hear your brother or your sister in distress, yeah. Uh, when you your colleague in distress um, or or that you hear something in their voice that says he or she doesn't sound the same as they're coming across this radio. Uh, a part of that culture is a part of being in that blue family is uh, you're going to rush to wherever that location is to provide some support, um, to provide some covering, some coverage. And I'll tell you, you know, I've benefited from that. You know, there's been times where I've had to go into to, uh, you know, shooting scenes um, regularly. You know, the average officer in the city of Philadelphia, you're responding to, you know, at least one shooting, at least one per day. Um, per day? Per day. Uh, that's, uh, you know, we, we've been averaging. Uh, right now, our homicides are up about uh, 17% from this time last year. Yeah. Um, we've been averaging somewhere around eight the 10 shootings, be it fatal or not fatal, um, eight to 10 shooting incidents uh, per day here in Philadelphia. 
Uh, and so uh, in certain communities, you know, um, you know, certain districts are seeing those shootings more than others. So your response is that. And so to have have someone to have your back in that situation where you're not going into that alone, that's a good example of, of what it means to to have uh, to be a part of a, a family of folks who will always have your back. So it sounds as if one of the defining features of uh, blue culture, as you see it, is a strong sense of commitment and loyalty uh, to other members of the force in that uh, you see uh, some, there's some benefits there, but, uh, but there are some, there are some costs. I'm, I'm also curious. uh, I, I'd been in preparing for this. I had, uh, been looking at an article by a researcher named James Hodden, and he notes that uh, the um, um, storied uh, researcher James Q. Wilson, uh, who has studied policing, distinguishes among three different styles of policing. And there's two that I want to talk about. Uh, one uh, style of policing that Wilson refers to as uh, the watchman uh, style is focused on uh, maintaining order. Uh, Officers who are characterized by this watchman style are committed to maintaining order above all, uh, and they exercise discretion as to when to enforce the law so that they don't necessarily um, uh, formally penalize every infraction that they encounter, but rather they enforce the law based on the officer's perception of threats to order. But, But the key is, those perceptions of who poses a threat are affected by the characteristics of the community, the characteristics uh, of the individual, and I would assume race might be one of them. So that's the watchman. But by contrast, uh, uh, Wilson also describes another style, which he calls the service-oriented approach. And you've actually mentioned service before, where the service-oriented officer is more likely than the watchman to respond to requests for service, regardless of who makes it, uh, and they're less likely uh, to respond um, uh, than other officers in a formal manner. Um, they will make arrests if necessary, but they'll try to find informal ways to resolve issues. And they're also more likely under the service-oriented approach to use foot patrols or, or, or other tactics that keep them uh, close to the people. And so um, thanks for bearing with me as I went through all that terminology. Uh, uh, I can't... You're tempted to preach. I'm a professor. I'm tempted to lecture. Uh, but uh, when you think about blue culture, um, is the in your experience, is that watchman style more dominant within blue culture than the service-oriented style? That's a great question. Uh, certainly, I believe that the you know Wilson's uh, you know definition there of of the watchman style is very dominant uh, in in police culture. Uh, you know, this language of the law and order. Uh, runs very rampant through uh, the uh, uh, police community. You know, even even during moments of unrest, like we find ourselves in right now, you yeah, know, what we've yeah. seen in, in in cities across uh, the country, this country over this past week, um, is we've seen peaceful protests. We've seen some level of of of, of uh, rioting, and I'll use the language that's used. Uh, in media and in, in law enforcement communities uh, of looting, 
Uh, and, and many who are part of the law enforcement community have, have, have raised the question of how do we, how do we establish order? How do we, how do we make sure we get, you know, this under control? Um, oftentimes we're, 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 we're looking at the symptoms and we're evaluating the symptoms uh, without necessarily looking at the sickness uh, or how we got to those, to this place. We're looking at the effect, but not, we're not, we're not assessing the cause. We're not getting to the root. Uh, I, I, and, and so to your question, I think that, uh, that the law enforcement community often uh, com- uh, identifies itself as a paramilitary uh, in- industry. Yeah. Uh, while I believe that it's important that the law enforcement community sees itself as a service-based uh, industry, um, because most of what we do, and I'm not saying that we should not be tactically sensitive. I'm, I'm not suggesting that we should not have the appropriate training um, to uh, use appropriate force when necessary. But when you have a officer who is equipped to provide service, to uh, communicate with uh, all groups of people who, um, who has a certain level of cultural competency to understand the difference between a young person who is uh, just frustrated because of life versus uh, has a disdain or, or being uh, disrespectful to police in that moment. You know, uh, an officer who has a service-oriented uh, style uh, will be will be one who uh, or, or or she will be one who decides to seek opportunities to to um, de-escalate situations using effective communication. Uh, if if I were a police chief in uh, a larger or smaller municipality, you know my focus would be particularly during uh, the uh, both the recruit training phase as well as the in-service training to think through ways I can partner with larger companies like the Marriott um, or, or Hyatt or Disney or uh, some large service organization or service industry, uh, service uh, company and bring in their corporate trainer to train my, my recruits as well as my, my officers on just customer service. How do you communicate with the public? How do you engage with the public? How do you de-escalate situations? Sometimes when you have paramilitary-style individuals training other people who are trying to become paramilitary on how to communicate with the public, um, that that can lead to that 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 sometimes is not is not uh, adequate enough um, to really send officers out uh, into public, particularly not in this climate. Uh, and so I think that there is some level of responsibility that police chiefs have across this country to uh, make sure that we're preparing officers to go out to be service-based. And, and, and let me just say this, and I know we got to the next question. There are many officers who will say, well, I, I didn't become a cop to be a social worker. Right. You know, I didn't become a cop to, to uh, I want to, I, I, I want to get the bad guys off the street. And yeah, so and, then, and I, I would think that the guys with those mindsets or the people, officers with that, with that mindset would not listen to your trainers from Marriott. This is why we need progressive police chiefs, just as we see progressive DAs who are being elected into to seats across this uh, this country. We need folks who are a bit more progressive. And, and I'm not saying far left, and I'm not trying to over-politicize the conversation here, but we need folks who are, who are, 
who believe in police reform. Because when you are at the uh, senior administration level, uh, changing policy and, and changing, uh, reforming training curriculums, what's gonna happen is uh, when, as, as people within the community start hearing that those reforms are taking place, you're gonna attract a different type of individual into, into your ranks. It may take a little bit of time because if you have if you have some some folks who are problematic within your ranks, you may have to you know let that time either they're going to kind of uh, weed themselves you know, they're going to expose themselves and there'll be an opportunity to to either uh, fire them or that person will retire or go on to another municipality or jurisdiction. Uh, but you'll start to attract a different type of individual when they see the value system that this particular department uh, operates uh, for and by. So I was reading recently about uh, Bob Kroll, uh, the uh, police union uh, chief in Minneapolis. And I, my breath was taken away by one article where it, it was clear from some of Kroll's quotes that not only has he um, used force as an officer on multiple occasions, but he came across as cavalier about it, saying he has no second thoughts at all, no uh, no reservations at all, no problem with that. And and I'll, of course, preface by saying I'm not a police officer. I am not in a position uh, to know what it's like to face the kinds of threats that might justify using force. So I'll certainly put that on the table. But I was struck by that. And one of the things that it raised for me, and I'll put this as a question to you, is whether a progressive chief can effectively enact the kinds of change you're describing if the union leadership is on a very different page. And so Kroll, for example, you mentioned de-escalation. Kroll, and I've, I've heard that other union uh, chiefs feel this way as well, was skeptical of de-escalation. I've, I've seen in some articles uh, uh, it written that union chiefs uh, suggest that de-escalation, because it asks officers where possible to slow down, is going to get officers killed. And so if you have a union chief who is uh, hostile to de-escalation, hostile to the kinds of progressive uh, kinds of reforms that a progressive chief might put in place, can that chief be effective? Yeah, I think, great question. I think that uh, a police chief in that situation uh, would would have to make a difficult decision, and that decision would be uh, it would be easy for some, uh, certainly it would be easy for me, and that would be to align themselves with the community, with the people. So th these these unions work out bargaining agreements and contracts with those particular cities. There's a negotiation period for those for those contracts, and a police chief can set the tone. While there will be resistance, a police chief can certainly set the tone uh, by aligning themselves, uh, while still being uh, for uh, and supporting their uh, their their coworkers uh, and 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 their uh, employees can always have the community's heart in mind that can create a space where you say, Hey, listen, we want some recommendations. How about we have a, 
a, a round table to, to think through some recommendations uh, that we can present to our mayor and our city council uh, and even to our union that, uh, that, the, that the community has in mind. And I, as a police chief, as a progressive police chief, will stand with you to help you think through uh, what, what type of rec recommendations make sense. I think, you know, those who are in senior positions in law enforcement can't be afraid to be courageous enough to stand with the people and, and help the people to get into rooms and help the people to think through what is reasonable recommendations for such reform. Will you run into resistance? Sure. Will you possibly be pushed out? Sure. But what, what kind of impact did you make while you were there is the question that uh, every police chief ha has to ask. Am I, am I making some type of impact? And I think that when you align with people, and here, here's my, my activism spirit coming out here, but I just believe that the people united shall never be defeated. And, and so as you, as you create a space where you can serve as an advisor to community advisory groups on the issue of police reform, and you can help present those types of recommendations, uh, I think that a police chief can, can find some level of success uh, in that situation. So I, I agree. I tend to agree that um, the people united cannot be defeated, uh, but I would add a caveat. Uh, if they are united around uh, clear objectives, sound strategy, and sound tactics. Sure. And so I wonder uh, if you have advice to community members, uh, including activists, who are committed to police reform, what are one or two examples of concrete steps they can take um, that might uh, move the needle on that. Yeah, I, I, as as groups come together, um, you know, sometimes you have a demonstration or you have a protest, and there there are so many different agendas in that one space. Yeah, uh, but I do believe that uh, when organizers uh, uh, seek to to rally around a cause to seek justice for someone who perhaps was killed or um, by by law enforcement or perhaps uh, if it's an opportunity to uh, to rally behind a particular cause, um, I think rallying is great. Making noise is great. Exercising that First Amendment uh, is something that we that that we that one should do, um, and and one should have the freedom to do that. But having clearly defined ask uh, is 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 critical. Um, I had a group of young faith leaders here in Philadelphia that reached out to me. Uh, uh, a couple of days ago, uh, asking if today uh, I could join them in a march. And my first question is, what's your ask? What are you, you're marching for what? what, what what's the goal? What, what's the, uh, you know, what, what, are you, what are you trying to get to here? Uh, justice. They didn't have justice. Just, justice, right? <laughs> and and, and, and they, they, they really couldn't answer that question. And I had to kind of, I had to ask them and advise them to go back to the table just to, lay out a, a, a few different asks that are reasonable, that, that, that are attainable, you know, maybe one or two short-term, one or two long-term, yeah. um, and then uh, put that out, whether it's social media or through, through media partners, say, we're meeting at this location, here's our ask, we're demanding this of the mayor, we're demanding this of the police commissioner, we're de demanding this of city council, uh, 
and this is our ask in, in that moment. And then look at ways you can find common ground with some, some significant stakeholders, whether that be uh, key faith leaders in the community, uh, mm-hmm. key community leaders, uh, or uh, even persons of, of the law enforcement community, um, particularly when it's around issues of police reform. Maybe there is some uh, police officers association, whether that be for uh, black officers or uh, LGBTQ uh, uh, people, or if it's for even uh, our Latino uh, brothers and sisters, finding finding some level of uh, a partnership within that space. Um, maybe there's a progressive DA or uh, someone in the Defenders Association that, that will walk alongside you as well. So I won't ask you this question in a global or national sense, uh, because what the particular asks that make most sense might be could vary from city to city. So when you think about uh, the greater Philadelphia area, um, I wonder if you have a sense of what one or two reforms might be that would be most valuable in policing at this moment. Is it greater use of de-escalation training? Uh, is it uh, different uh, training for the field training officers who work with uh, uh, rookie uh, officers? Uh, is it something else? Uh, what are some of the um, ref- what are one or two specific reforms that you think would be most valuable in your area? Great question. Yes, I'll give you a few. Uh, okay. One, uh, we have a police advisory commission here, which is a, a civilian oversight commission or advisory uh, board. Yep. Um, that, that board uh, falls under it's, it's under the mayor's office, uh, and so unfortunately. They have the ability to make recommendations, um, but uh, they uh, sometimes it, it seems as if they can be uh, that they're getting that they're be, that they've been silenced uh, on issues, uh, and so they don't always have the level of freedom to speak boldly uh, for the community um, and to speak boldly about their recommendations. I don't think that they also have enough resource, and they need uh, teeth as well. The ability, they have, uh, subpoena powers, uh, the, the ability to to be effective, uh, and, and I, so I, that, that's one of the reforms. Uh, secondly, um, the background investigation process here in Philadelphia, um, there are about the number of fluctuates between thirty to thirty-three percent uh, of African Americans on the Philadelphia Police Department. That, that those numbers have been the same since uh, for the last two decades. Um, I. Now, if you ask some folks in, in the police community, they would say, hey, because African-Americans, uh, some African-Americans in the community have barriers uh, to prevent them to be able to, to get through our hiring process, uh, whether that be a, a, some type of blemish on their record uh, or some issue as far as credit, because your credit is checked, um, whatever, whatever those barriers may be uh, or those blemishes may be. Um, What's interesting enough is I've uh, set an academy with white officers who uh, were transparent about their past or uh, what what you know what they had to overcome in their own life, and I know African Americans who who had the same set of experiences, same uh, blemishes, but this white officer um, had an uncle or had a cousin or had a family friend 
cool, they were making a phone call and that whatever that issue was, uh, was not even uh, a, a factor anymore. Um, and so I asked the question of whether that 30 to 30% is uh, by circumstance or is it actually by design? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, we need uh, to really ask and request of the new commissioner, Daniel Outlaw, to take a look at the background investigation process uh, to make sure that it's fair, that uh, minorities who are coming through the process, uh, particularly African-Americans, um, have the same treatment, uh, the, those recruits uh, or those uh, applicants have the same um, uh, treatment and, yeah. and that they're, they're reviewed the same way that uh, anyone else. I would also say that having a, a community uh, advisory committee of some sort uh, in the, uh, you know, in that hiring process. I think if, if I were a police chief, having a group of com- trusted community, a diverse group of trusted, um, uh, incredible community stakeholders, a part of the hiring process. So yeah. just that you have to go get a, a physical and psycholo- uh, psychological examination uh, and your credit is checked, one station in the process is you have to stand before a a, a panel of seven or five uh, uh, community stakeholders, uh, and they will have very direct questions. And that that group can recommend and have recommendation uh, power to be able to say, "Hey, look, we we think that you know we did a vote. Either this person is is credible, capable, competent to serve within uh, our community." or not, uh, the community's voice have to be in the process of who becomes um, uh, a police officer uh, in a community and not. So that's, that's just a few, I mean, I, you know, I certainly will look at, at training. I know here in Philadelphia, uh, at least up until last year, some things may have changed. I don't think they have, but there has been no anti-racism training yeah. uh, department-wide. There has been no, we, we've learned that during the Facebook scandal back in 2019, that there was no anti-racism training, no uh, implicit and explicit bias training here in the Philadelphia Police Department. Um, So those are a few few reforms that I I would certainly certainly look at. In thinking about uh, that 30% number, uh, and again, that's uh, that's been the approximate percentage uh, of officers who are officers of color or are African-American in particular. African-American in particular. So in thinking about uh, ways to potentially increase that percentage, is your assumption, what do you see the proportion of officers who are uh, are African-American, do you see that as connected to uh, some of the issues involving uh, use of disproportionate use of force against um, African-American community members? That is to say, if there were more black officers in the force, would you expect to see uh, less biased policing of that sort? Absolutely. When you, know, when you have people who are from the community uh, policing the community, uh, there's a, there's a, you have a, you're at a certain advantage uh, and there's a benefit um, both for the community and for the department uh, because that officer will respond a different way uh, to circumstances based upon their own experience. Uh, they'll understand those people. They'll understand that community. They'll understand uh, the culture within that space. 
Um, but also, um, I believe that because I see it, uh, certainly, um, and I, I don't have any data uh, to necessarily back this, but I would suggest that based upon my observation and my experience, uh, that um, you know, you would certainly have officers using force less. You know, uh, I think that would be a reality. I think that's something that um, this department certainly needs to look at. Um, you know, uh, creating spaces where those who are from, uh, you know, we hear it all the time. Even even for the African American officers who are being hired, many of them are from uh, other cities or the surrounding counties. So just hiring. African-American individuals, that's one thing, but hiring African-Americans and people of color from Philly, from the inner city of Philly, I think uh, would would certainly add value and add a a different perspective uh, and will have impact on on use of force in a positive way. So then here's my last question. Um, And the background for this is, I I, I ain't going to lie. Sometimes people uh, resist the efforts of police officers uh, to uh, arrest them. Um, Sometimes people are are combative. I don't have to tell you that. Sometimes um, people... Uh, don't have their best day when they're with uh, police officers. Actually, I I was in a conversation um, months ago with a Maine-based police officer, and he was saying, "When you call the police, or when the police are called on you, you're it doesn't ha- it doesn't happen when you're having a good day. You're having a bad day, and sometimes people uh, who are having a particularly bad day may manifest uh, some difficult behaviors. Uh, and I uh, have seen reports that uh, George Floyd." Uh, when the officers were attempting to get him into the cruiser, uh, was not eager to go into the cruiser and was physically uh, resistant. That in no way justifies uh, what happened, especially since he was handcuffed uh, throughout the, uh, that time. So that, that in no way justifies that, in my view. But officers do have to uh, somehow handle situations where community members are resistant in some way. And if you were, let's say I'm, I'm a new officer, I'm a rookie officer, and you have been assigned uh, to uh, oversee my field training, do you have thoughts on the kinds of advice you would give me on how to effectively engage such situations? Uh, and I know they, they, they're quite variable, but are there any general principles you would offer to me uh, that might help me manage those situations in a way that allows me to stay safe as an officer? but also allows me to uh, use only the uh, level of force needed and to maximize the odds that I'm not only going to be the one going to be one who walks away safely, but also the community member will walk away safely. Yeah. So day one, your training day, Michael, I I would, I would certainly take uh, the, if I look, if I was your training officer for the first week, let's say we will respond to, I would probably go over police radio and tell police radio to, to uh, if there is any priority calls that come out, we're going to respond to those calls because we have to. But, but I would spend that first week introducing you to, to the community. 
uh, it would be less about the the assignments as far as responding to those jobs, if possible, because there's sometimes you just can't control that because parties will come out. But but I, I would be focused on introducing you to key stakeholders, business owners, faith leaders, and even young men and women who are quote unquote in the game, in the light, yeah. uh, to help you hear the heart of the community. And I would I would ask the community as I'm introducing you to give you some advice of what they need from you as a new police officer coming into that community. I would urge you to listen to them. I would urge you to keep your ears and your eyes open to hear from them. Often, again, for folks who are coming into policing who are not from the, who didn't grow up in that particular municipality, particularly if it's an urban context, they don't know anybody. They they don't know people. They don't even know the streets. They don't even know, you know, just just the blocks. And so there's not enough communication happening outside of investigation. So if I took you to the corner of 60th and Spruce in Philadelphia, and I introduced you to a few folks out there, just, hey, because if, I, if I'm a credit, if I have credibility on the street and in the community as an officer, then I can get into spaces and introduce you to, to some people and then let you let them let them inform you of what they need of you. Yeah. Um, so I, w- I would spend time introducing that in- individual to to the community, key stakeholders, faith leaders, community leaders, um, as well as even those who, quote unquote, may be in the light. I would I would really um, ask that. Uh, younger officer to allow me over the next few weeks to to guide the our response in situations to um, to try not to come into any situation on ten, but but to really try to come in at, at the lowest number possible to uh, use their 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 perception more than that that police instinct to just run and gun but rather just just to slow it down a bit um and assess situations um through multiple lenses um yes as a police officer but also just as a human being i would also advise that that a new uh police officer to do their homework on that particular community to learn about some of the plights to learn about uh, the, the the poverty in that community, perhaps the education system in that community, perhaps uh, uh, the unemployment rate in that community. I would give that officer a homework assignment and ask them to create a community engagement program that they can run themselves, that I, as their training officer, can give them the resources and the support that they need where they, as a new officer, can host some type of community engagement uh, or community relations program, whether that might be some job fair or whether that may be uh, feeding uh, hungry men and women uh, in a community, whatever that may be as a way to build a bridge. But my hope would be to try to encourage that individual to allow people to see their name tag before they see their, their badge or their their, their, their police patch on their arm to really get to know them. Because people will either say this, Mike, they'll either say, here come the cops, or they're going to say, oh, here comes Michael. You know, I remember where the shift happened for me as an officer, where folks be like, yo, the cop's coming. Oh, no, 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 they're, 
Stu's there. That's Stu. Stu's coming. All right, we're good. <laughs> you, you you want to get to a place where people know your name, but know you for for the positive that that if you show up, if you're there, even if an investigation is happening, stuff's not going to get out of hand because of your credibility and your reputation in the community. So those are those, that that's some advice I would give that, that comes to mind right away. Um. Well, I I know I got to let you go, but it's, I I. It, that asks a lot of officers and I'm not saying it's wrong to ask that of them, uh, but it's already a difficult job and you're asking them to, to be different, to, to, to have that, to do something different. Uh, that, that's, that's really what the community is asking of us right now. Yeah. Um, I, I would ask that officer be the, be they black, be they white, be they uh, Latino. Do black lives matter to you? <laughs> You know, I would hope the answer. I would hope the answer is yes. I would hope the answer is yes, and I would say not to be afraid to 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 share that with someone in the community. Yeah. Um, you know, one one of the things that I've done all week long. Of course, I've been at the pro. I've been at the protest, uh, particularly the peaceful protest. I've been at multiple ones. Had my son, my five year old, with me at one of those protests. But when I've been working in my official capacity. Um, I'm in plain clothes in a suit, but I do, of course, have a badge and a gun. Uh, and as I've seen protesters during this week, uh, some who are a lot younger, a lot of millennials, some who are a little older, I've been intentional to stop them and just say, and, and intentionally having my badge showing, you know, I thank you for what you're doing for us. Thank you for what you're doing for our community. Just wanted to let you know that Black Lives Matter to me. Yeah. And you should see the expression that that you get when people see that badge and hear an officer say Black Lives Matter, I've been intentional to, uh, as I've seen protesters kneel uh, and taking the knee uh, in solidarity with the movement across this country uh, to seek justice for George Floyd, uh, as well as others who, uh, who have uh, died at the hands of, of, of police. I've been, in, I've been intentional to take that knee with my badge shown. Uh, as a symbol of solidarity, as a symbol uh, of saying, I stand with you in this moment. Uh, and I've been intentional to vocalize the truth, content in my heart, which is Black Lives Matter to me. That's it for Tatter. I want to thank Lamar Stewart for taking the time to talk with me. For more information on this episode, go to tatter.fireside.fm and find the page for this particular episode where you will find relevant links. Also, if you want to offer feedback on this or any other episode of Tatter, if you're a Twitter user, you can mention Tatter using the handle at tatter underscore rags, or you can go to Apple Podcasts and post a rating and or a review. Or, for more private feedback, you can send an email to tatter.rags.2017 at gmail.com. In any case, thanks for listening. Wash your hands. If you are a U.S. citizen, be sure to vote. And be well. <laughs>